Luke chapter 12, our third Lucan parable. Let's start in verse 13. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Jesus is going to tell us another story, another story with a spiritual emphasis and a spiritual point to it. Verse 13 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now let me set this up for you. In Luke chapter 12, uh, 1 through 12, the context of this question is that Jesus is in the midst of a large crowd, so large of a crowd, it says back in uh, the beginning of the chapter, that they were uh, literally stepping on one another. They had come to hear what Jesus had to say, and uh, this crowd had gathered around him, and Jesus is teaching, the context of his teaching is basically on the topic of hypocrisy. He's talking to them about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those supposed religious leaders of the day. And he's, he's, he's going on about the spiritual need of not being hypocritical in our lives, that our lives can't be incongruent with what we think and what our heart believes. And so in 1 through 12, he's talking about this idea of hypocrisy, and this man interrupts. This guy essentially raises his hand. It's kind of like in class, if you remember, uh, there's always one wise guy that would raise his hand in the middle of class and kind of, out of the whole flow of the lesson, would ask the teacher, you know, is this going to be on the test? It's that kind of a question that always annoys the teacher. Of course, uh, you know, it's going to be on the test. Even if it's not on the test, you need to pay attention, right? Well, this guy comes up with one of those questions, and it's sort of out of uh, the flow of what Jesus is talking about, but Jesus is going to work it back in for his benefit. Being the good teacher that he is, he's not just going to answer this guy's question. He's going to answer this guy's question... In an indirect way, he's going to then tie it back into everything he was trying to teach in the first place. And he's going to do much more than this man ever asked for. But this guy raises his hand and he interrupts and he asks this question. Teacher, tell my brother. Well, it's not even a question, is it? Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance. When a father would die, the older brother would get the family inheritance and he was... Uh, essentially the executor of the will, and he was to divide it among the rest of the brothers. And so apparently this, these two brothers are in this crowd, and the younger brother says to Jesus, Hey, listen, my brother, my older brother, has not divided the family inheritance. Our father's died, and uh, he's not given me what is mine. And so uh, the inference is that these two brothers are standing in this crowd, and the younger brother says, just out of the blue, Jesus, listen, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I haven't got my inheritance. And uh, you you've seem to have a lot of authority here. Can you get my brother to give me what's mine? Now, look at Jesus' reaction here. I, I love the reaction of Christ in verse 14. But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus, sort of out of uh, uh, maybe a little bit of annoyance to the guy's question, He uh, responds by saying that, you know what, my job right now is not judge. One day I will be judge. And although Jesus uh, had the qualifications to be judge or arbitrator in this case, I mean, he could declare right and wrong. He could command the brother to give or command this guy to not worry about it. Jesus could do that, but he says, you know what, Uh, that's not my deal right now. That's not my calling. Right now I'm here to be a teacher and I'm here to be savior. One day I will come back and be judge is the inference. But... Anyway, Jesus says, I'll give you an answer. Maybe not the answer you're looking for, but I'll give you an answer. Verse 15, he continued to say to him, 
And to all those who are listening, don't forget that we're in a crowd here. The disciples are there, not just these two brothers, but we're in a large gathering. And Jesus gives him this answer. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Not the answer the guy was looking for, is it? Jesus has now gone into his parable. And he's going to tell a story. But before he tells the story, he sets up his story with the principle. You know, a lot of times when Jesus tells a parable, the principle unfolds itself in the parable. And at the end, you understand the principle. On this occasion, Jesus isn't planning on telling a story, but a story, an opportunity to tell a story presents itself. And taking this man's request, he turns his request into a teachable moment. And Jesus, right up front, says, let me give you a principle here to chew on. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. The principle before the parable is that having more won't do the trick, right? Having more won't make things better. It applies to this man, and you can see this man probably just sinking back into the crowd saying, you know, I didn't bargain for this. I just wanted Jesus to declare what was right here. But instead, he maybe sees deeper into my heart and into my soul than I thought he could. And he gives me this lesson. And the lesson is that getting more won't solve the problems of my soul. Not just possessions, not just having material things, but Jesus says, many possessions. Even if you have a vast number of things, even if you get it all, even if you hit the jackpot, even if you win the lottery, you need to understand that life does not consist of those possessions. Now, the word life in this passage is interesting. It's used in this chapter uh, numerous times. It's more than just your breath. It's more than just uh, being able to walk around and live and breathe. It is the idea of abundance. It's the, it's the idea of life, meaning that you have a purpose. You have a reason for existing. It's your goal, if you will. So Jesus says that getting as much as you could possibly get will not provide this life that you seek. So he lays that principle out there, and then he says, let me explain. Because doubtless there are people in the crowd, and maybe these brothers saying, yeah, I don't understand. And so Jesus starts into his parable, verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. He's going to tell a story of a farmer. A farmer who works his land. And he's going to say that this man's land was very productive. Productive. No doubt this guy was a hard worker, but notice where the production comes from. Does he say that this man was very productive? No, it doesn't. He says that this man had land and his land was very productive. Lesson number one right up front for everyone to learn is that it's not the worker who produces And in the Jewish culture, uh, an agricultural culture, they knew that if God didn't cause it to rain, if the spring rains didn't come, 
if the early and the late rains didn't come, if God didn't pour down his blessing upon the earth, no matter how hard I worked on that ground, nothing would spring up. There would be no produce. And so at the beginning of the parable, Jesus sets this up. He says the land of a rich man was very productive. 17, and he began to reason to himself, saying, be careful anytime you start to reason to yourself. Scripture says that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. So anytime you begin to talk to yourself about what's going on inside, uh, you know you're probably going to run into some problems. But he does that. He says, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Notice uh, also that the word I, it's going to be used six times. Six times by this guy. I, I, I. What is his main concern? Me. It's my life. My crops. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? He's got a bumper crop. God has blessed. The rains have fallen. His land has been very productive. And uh, his crops are coming out. And he's got more than he needs. More than he can even store in his barns. And so he begins to think to himself, what am I going to do here? I've got more than I can even use myself or that I could even store. So here's what he says. Verse 18. Then he said, this is what I will do. Notice the eyes. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. He's got a plan here, right? And let's be fair, okay? Uh, if we didn't know that Jesus was about to walk this guy on the head with his parable... Uh, we would all say that this is a pretty, you know, a pretty good guy. I mean, he's a sharp guy. He's productive. Uh, he's obviously successful. He's got to have some sort of wisdom about him. He's got to be uh, diligent about his work. I mean, to work the land takes a little bit of uh, enthusiasm and it takes a little bit of effort. It's not an easy job. So we got to like this guy, right? I mean, he's productive. He's a planner. He's a thinker. And he's actually planning ahead, Right? So I kind of like this guy. Maybe there's nothing wrong with him. Or is there? Keep going. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. 19, and I will say to my soul, uh uh-oh. He's beginning to get himself in trouble. He's talking to himself again. And I want you to notice who he's talking to. Very interesting. Jesus tells a story, and in the story, he says that this man begins to say to his soul. He's beginning to go to the very inner man. Not just the outer man, not just the, uh, the apparent man. We're starting to see what the heart of the man is. We're starting to see deep into his soul. We're starting to see the inner true man. Okay? Now, here's what this guy is going to say to the inner true man. Here's what he's thinking deep in the recesses of his heart. I will say to my soul, soul? It's kind of of funny to me that he would actually say that aloud, but he does. Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You see what happens here? He goes from the external things and it turns internal. You see, Jesus lists this man's qualifications. He points to all the external things about this man. And then he says, but look at what's going on inside this man. Those external material things begin to take hold and begin to root themselves 
in the very inner man. That's where the difference comes. These things have gotten control of this man. The soul is the true man, more than the physical outside. He has a couple of false assumptions here. Let me run you through just a short list of some of this guy's false assumptions that are uh, exposed when he talks to his soul. Uh, I'll give you six, but there's doubtlessly uh, more. Number one, already we saw that he fails to recognize from where his blessings come. Not once did he say, God has blessed me with all this. Not once. And I just want to tell you, that's a, that's a big no-no. They knew that if God didn't bless, that if the rains didn't come, their land would not be productive. But never once does this guy say, God has so blessed me that I will do this. Or that God has so blessed me, uh, I'm going to be able to retire early, uh, but it's all because of God. No credit is given to God. I, 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 my, my, my. Number two, second false assumption, uh, is that wealth will equal happiness. For this guy. Can wealth give us a false sense of happiness? It sure can. The problem is that when wealth fades, what happens? Our happiness fades. See, your happiness is based on happenstance. It's based on what is happening around you. And so a false assumption that this guy makes is that he can take his ease, he can eat, drink, and be merry. Because he has been granted this wealth. Number three, that wealth was for saving instead of using. That's his third false assumption. That this wealth was for saving and not using. He could have given it away, couldn't he? Instead of building more barns, he could have said, you know what, I've got all I need. Uh, My barns are full and I've got what I need. I'm going to give it away. I'm going to bless someone else. But he doesn't do that. His assumption is that he needs to hoard that he needs to keep it and he needs to build more barns so he can have more stuff, so he can have more money, so he can do more things, so he can have more time for more of himself. Uh, fourth false assumption here is that in wealth he found a false sense of security. What does he say here? Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. In wealth we find a false sense of security. That he could take his ease and retire early. This guy said, you know what? I've got more than I need for the rest of my life. There's really no need to continue farming. Uh, I'm going to retire early and I'm going to live off of this bumper crop. And I'll build more barns to hold it so that it will be there in the future for me when I need it. And I'll eat, drink, and be merry. Wealth gave him a false sense of security. Number five, uh, that wealth equals longevity. Do we have this problem? Do we have this struggle that somehow wealth gives us this false sense of longevity? He assumes that he would be alive in the future. That when those future days come, that he would still be around. Let me give you another one here. This is the last one. Uh, Last false assumption. That not only would he be around in the future, but that he would have his wealth even if he is around in the future. You see, he assumed that God would allow him to keep it. He assumed that he wouldn't get robbed. He assumed it wouldn't get stolen. He assumed that it wouldn't rot. Wealth can do that. Look at verse 20. Those are the things that he was saying to his soul. Look at what God says to this man's soul. 
something very different in verse 20. But God said to him, here's your contrast, you fool. Trivia question, where is the one place in Scripture that God calls an individual a fool? Yep, right here. You don't have to be a genius to know that, right? God calls this man a fool. It's the only place in Scripture. You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? What does God say? He says you're a fool. And he contrasts what this man thought, and he gives him, he gives him two, different, two different ways to look at this scenario. Number one, he says, you do not have many years. He said to his soul, I have many years and I have much goods. I'll eat, drink, and be merry. I'll live a life of ease. God says, you know what? You don't have many years. In fact, your life is required of you this very night. Can God do that? Sure can. Number two, you will not be the one who possesses this wealth in the future. Someone else will possess it. And he asks the man this question. He says, your soul is required of you this very night, and who's going to have what you've stored up? When you die, you're not going to take it with you. The, the idea that Jesus conveys here is that someone else is going to get all this stuff that you're so investing your life in. You're not going to live forever. In fact, if I want to call your card right now, I can do it. This very night, I can bring you to judgment. And not only that, when you pass, none of this stuff is going to be yours. It's going to fall into the hands of your kids, or maybe it falls into the hands of whoever gets it. So you know what? Soul, you're a fool. You're a fool. Be careful. Your wisdom is limited and your heart is tainted, is deceitful. Scripture tells us that. Verse 21, Jesus is going to apply this parable. Not often do we get Jesus giving us application for his parable, but he's going to come full circle. He starts with a principle and he's going to end with the same principle and he's going to apply it so that these two brothers, so that the disciples, and so that the crowd who is hearing this story, and so that we, today even, know exactly what Jesus is trying to prove in this parable. Look at what he says in verse 21. So is the man. That could be any one of us. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself. Key words, for himself. And is not rich towards God. The application of the story is, if we live for ourselves with no regard for God and His will, we will be disappointed, and our life will be a disappointment. Pretty easy. Pretty simple point, right? Now, in the context of hypocrisy, does this story fit? You know, Jesus started out, chapter 12, talking to this crowd about hypocrisy. This guy raises his hand, and he says, Jesus, can you, can you butt in here? Can you, can you straighten this situation out? I mean, I need my inheritance. I need my money. Jesus starts with the point. You know what? Even if you get everything that your heart could desire, that's not going to amount to true life 
true abundant life. So let me tell you a story so that you can see what I'm talking about. He tells this story. And in the end, this man who starts out being a pretty good looking guy, pretty wise, sharp guy, pretty organized guy, a planner, a thinker. I mean, he's looking to the future. Good qualities. It turns out that God is going to call this man a fool. Now, the reason he's going to call him a fool is not because of his wealth, because of his lack of wealth. And in the flow of the context of this passage, how does this fit into hypocrisy? When we live our lives contrary to what we say we believe is true, then we are living a life of incongruency. This parable is for the crowd who is gathered near Jesus. This isn't for those who are far off. Think about this now and put yourself in this place. These people are gathered to hear what Jesus has to say. They respect what he has to say. They're near to him. Who is that today? That's us. Those of us who have gathered near to Christ, who call ourselves his followers, his disciples. This is for our ears. Those who have gathered near to Christ, but who are easily distracted by what? All forms of greed, Jesus started by saying. What Colossians 3 calls idolatry. Bottom line, it's idolatry. It's the idea of where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Where does Jesus say that? Do you know? That where our treasure is, there our heart will be also? It's before he ends chapter 12. It's the context of this parable. So, what do we do? Jesus gives us a warning. Did you notice the warning? He said, beware and be on your guard. Verse 15. Beware. Know that this is an issue, believers. Know that this is an issue, church. Beware of it. Be warned. Caution. It is an issue, church. But don't just beware. He says, be on your guard. It's the picture of a soldier drawing his sword. Don't just know that the problem is out there, church. Know that the problem is presenting itself on a regular basis. And don't just beware of it. Be on your guard. Be like a good soldier. Draw your sword against this evil. Because it comes in many forms. And it amounts to idolatry in the end. Because where your treasure is, is where your heart ends up. This man was called a fool, not because he was successful and not even because he planned for the future, but because he had given, listen now, his heart and his soul to his possessions instead of to the God who allowed him to attain his possessions in the first place. You see the difference? Okay, let's get practical. What do we need to learn from this parable? Let me give you a list of seven things here. There's more, but I'm going to give you seven obvious ones. Number one, when you do get, know from whom you've gotten. Amen? When you do get, know from whom you've gotten it. 
Number two, don't be fooled. Wealth, even great wealth, cannot promise security or longevity. It's a false assumption. It's a facade, and it's a lie of the devil used to distract us and defame us and ultimately to destroy us. Number three, God is in ultimate and total control. He can give and even take away based on his own good pleasure and purpose. Amen? See Job. He can even require your very life. Amen? Number four, this isn't a call to be poor, to be sure. This isn't a call to be poor. Now listen here, because this is important. It is a warning not to forget God in times of wealth. There's nothing wrong with this guy having a bumper crop. The blessing isn't the problem. It's that this guy began to look into his soul and he went down the wrong road in his heart. And he didn't do with his wealth and he didn't have an attitude towards his wealth that was pleasing to God. The wealth isn't the problem. It's a warning not to forget God in times of wealth. It's the idea of Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, God says to the nation of Israel, He says, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and I'm going to put you in a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to give you houses that you did not build, and I'm going to give you wells that you did not dig. But you need to be careful when you get there that you do not, what does it say, Deuteronomy 6? That you do not forget your God. And begin to think that you've gained all this stuff on your own. Proverbs 30. There's a prayer. I love the prayer in Proverbs 30. I think it's 7 through 9. Man says, Lord, this I ask. Two things. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Because if you give me poverty, I might be tempted to steal and thus defame the name of my God. But if you give me riches, that I might be tempted to say, who is the Lord? And that I might say to my soul, look at what I have attained. You see, there's a balance in Scripture. God's not calling us to be ascetics, to give up every good thing, to sell all of our possessions so that we could just have this facade of humbleness. Proverbs 30 is a great prayer of balance. that We need neither be poor, that we be tempted to defame the name of God in theft, and we neither have riches to such a degree that we would be tempted to say, well, who's God anyway? Look at what I've done. Look at how successful I am. Let me give you another one. Don't hoard for yourself. Be a blessing to others. Give money away, church. God has a system for believers taking care of believers. Amen? I mean, that's the way He set it up. Don't build yourself another barn. If God gives you extra, ask yourself, who do I need to bless? The very reason that we have this opportunity to pay off our equipment loan is because one individual said that I look for places that God is being honored, and I take my money and I honor those ministries. And so he said, I'll give you $4,000 if you can come up with 4000 And I'll help you pay off this loan. Don't hoard for yourself, church. 
Be ready to give money away. God has a system for believers taking care of believers and even the church taking care of those outside the church. Do you know that? That God has set up this thing that we are to be the social justice. We are to be the social security for the world. Did you know that? It's not the government. It's not the government's job to take care of us. I'm sorry. It's the government's job to protect us, to protect the good guy, and punish the bad guy. All right, that's another sermon. Let me give you another practical lesson here. Number six, Jesus came to give us life and life abundantly, but that doesn't mean monetary wealth, primarily or even necessarily. Understand that the good life, as Jesus understood it and as Paul understood it, wasn't our American dream of great accumulation and great acquisition. True life is not the stuff we collect, but the God we serve. He is what? Who did Jesus say he was? He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Paul said that for him to live is what? Christ. Christ is my life, my purpose, my reason, my goal. You want the life? God says, you're not going to find it even in great wealth. Find it in me. I am the life. As we find life in Him, as we sang earlier, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. Number seven, here's your last one. Raise your sights, church. Cultivate an eternal perspective. He who knows the future and fails to act upon that knowledge in the here and now is certainly a fool. Let me say that again. He who knows the future and fails to act upon the knowledge in the here and now is certainly a fool. Listen, we've been given, church, the ultimate insider's trading tip. Right? I mean, that's what it is. What is it? Something like 40% of our Bible is prophecy and about future fulfillment of God's eternal plan. I mean, why do you think God gives us revelation? Why do you think God says, hey, uh, Israel, hey, church, here's what's going to happen in the future. It's so that we have the benefit of looking forward, knowing what the end is from the beginning, because God has told us, and we can live our life now accordingly. This man in the parable, he had no idea of future fulfillment. He was short-sighted. He had his eyes down. Raise your sights, church. To live with our eyes down is hypocrisy. To live with our eyes down is hypocrisy. It's to live a life incongruent with what we know to be true. And so the parable here, although this guy tried to skew the teachings of Christ, it fits in perfectly. Jesus says, don't let the things of this world grab your attention to such a degree that you forget what's going to happen in the end. You forget the big picture. Because when you do that, you begin to live a life that is hypocritical. It is against what you believe to happen in the future. We have our eyes set on a higher calling to which we strive. Do, be not, do not be ruined by that which is temporal and in the end 
empty. 1 Timothy 6. Let me read this to you. Paul's words to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6. 6. You don't have to turn. I'll read it. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into a temptation. Beware. Be on your guard. There is a great danger out there, Paul is saying to Timothy. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare. You know what a snare is? It's an animal trap. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. It can catch you on any day and in a vast number of ways. It's the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away. Beware. Be on guard, church. They have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, Timothy, flee from these things, you man of God. That's the attitude we should have, church. I told you before that um, early on in my Christian walk, the guys that would impress me were the uh, popular guys, especially in ministry. Early on, when I knew I was going into ministry, I looked up to the popular guys. I mean, they were popular. Everybody liked them. Uh, as I got a little older, the popular guys weren't the guys that I really looked up to. I began to really look up to the more talented guys. I mean, that guy, he's not just popular, but he's got a gift. And I was impressed with those guys. Uh, a little bit later, I started to see that it wasn't about the popular guy. It wasn't about the talented guy, even. Uh, I began to look up to the guy who was the wise guy. I mean, the 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 educated, the sharp guy, the guy who knew his word. But you know, the older I get, I become more and more impressed, not with those guys, but more and more impressed with the old faithful guys. Why? Because it's so easy to not be aware. It's so easy not to be on our guard. It's so easy to wander, as Paul would say, and end our life on a sad note. To fail in the end. That's not what I want. The guys I look up to now are the guys who've been doing it for a long time. Who've been faithful over the long haul. They didn't start strong and end weak. They started strong and they ended strong. Church, finish well. Finish well, church. Let me read you another passage. Actually, why don't you turn to this one? Second Timothy chapter four. I want to show you the words of Paul. Second Timothy is likely Paul's last letter before his death. I want to show you the attitude of Paul as he knew he was about to pass from this life into eternity. This is the way you want to end up, church. First Timothy. Or 2 Timothy, I'm sorry. Chapter 4, let's start in uh, verse 6. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am ready, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. That means his death. 
Literally, it's the word that means to untie his ship and go from one side of the water to the other. It's a picture of crossing the Jordan. He's going to loose his ship from this life and cross over. He said, the time of my crossing over or my departure has come. And I have what? Fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Now look at what else he says. And not to me only, but also to all those who have what? Loved his appearing. What does Paul say at the end of his life? Look to the days to come. Those who will receive a crown will receive a crown because they lived their life loving and looking for the appearing of their Savior. They lived with the knowledge of what was coming. That the righteous judge was coming. And they longed for his appearing. Paul says, that's how I've lived my life. I live my life in light of what is going to happen when I die. You live your life like that. Don't live your life like verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. Why? Because verse 10, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Demas was a faithful guy. He's mentioned in other epistles as a faithful brother in the work of the ministry with Paul. But what happens in the end? Does he prove to be faithful to the end? He doesn't. Demas deserts the ministry. And he deserts Paul. And he says to us and to Timothy, you live your life. You live your life like I have lived my life. I've lived my life loving and looking for his appearing. My focus has been on heaven and my Savior in heaven. Don't end up like Demas. He deserted me. Why? Because his sights and his focus was set on not heaven, but the things of this world. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of the everyday life, Paul says. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who has what? So that he may please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. Church, we are soldiers in the army of God. Have you seen that picture before? We are soldiers in the army of God. And Paul says, just like a good soldier cannot leave the battle to go and deal with uh, the physical things that are demanding our attention in this everyday life, I mean, it's the picture of uh, a guy in Iraq fighting the Gulf War right now. Him saying to his commanding officer, you know what, uh, i got to go home and uh, pay some bills, take care of some things. Uh, you know, I need to make a little money, and then I'll be back. No, you don't do that. Why? You've been enlisted, and you're serving as a soldier in the Army. And what do we do? We give you everything that you need so that you don't have to worry about being entangled by the everyday things of this life. So you focus on the battle at hand. 
Paul says we're like that soldier. And we're in active service of our general. And we will not entangle ourselves with the burdens of this everyday life. Instead, we will live to please the one who has enlisted us as a good soldier. Isn't that a good picture? Let me give you an illustration here and we'll be done. I heard the story of a, an Italian master and a slave. It's kind of an old folk story. This master has this slave, and his slave is, uh, in the master's eyes, the most foolish of all his slaves. And the master says to the slave, Slave, come on in here. I'm going to begin to call you fool. That's your new name, fool. And here's what I want you to do, fool, because you're the most foolish slave that I have. I want you to take this stick, and I want you to carry it around for the rest of your life. Uh, you want me to carry the stick, boss? Yeah, carry the stick for the rest of your life. What do I do with it? You carry it until you find someone who's more foolish than you are. And if you find that guy, you give him the stick. But until you find him, you carry it around. And the fool says, okay. And now you can insert any fool you want right here, okay? Uh, it can be Carl from Sling Blade. It could be the big... Uh, it could be the big guy in prison and uh, the Green Mile. You know what I'm talking about? And so this fool carries around this stick all the days of his life. And some years pass, and the guy's still got this stick. He's never found anyone more foolish than he. And his master calls him into his chambers, and he says, uh, Listen, I'm going on a trip. I'm going on a journey. And uh, I wanted to let you know. And the uh, slave says, well, you, you, need me to, you need me to pack your bags for the trip? The master says, no. For this trip, I'm not going to need any clothes. I'm not, not going to take, take any stuff. I'm not going to need anything. He says, you're going on a trip. You're not going to need anything. You sure you don't want me to pack you something? He says, no, I'm not going to need anything. In fact, I'm not even going to leave this bed. He says, you're going on a trip. You're not going to leave the bed? You don't need anything to take with you? Do you know where you're going? He says, you know what? I don't. I don't know where I'm going. He says, you don't know where you're going. You're not packing anything. Could you avoid this trip? The man says, no, I can't avoid this trip. He said, did you know this trip was coming, boss? Yeah, I knew the trip was coming. He said, you knew this trip was coming. But you don't know where it is you're going. And you don't have anything to pack and take with you. So that's right. He said, sir, your stick. He laid the stick on the old man's bed. And he says, for you are a greater fool than I. Church, listen. We've got a trip coming. And those who are in this world outside that we come in contact with, there's a trip coming. They're going to cross from one side to the other. One thing's for sure, we will all die. It has been appointed to a man once to die and then the judgment. There will be a judgment. We live with a knowledge of the future, church, that we know what's coming. And so to live our lives... Now, here, without taking into consideration what comes in the future, is hypocritical. 
And so our warning and our guard should be set that we live our lives not focused and fixed on the things of this earth, but on the things of heaven. And we tell a story about a future that is to come for everyone else who walks this earth. And we not get entangled in the things of this world so that that story gets hidden, that light gets dim. But we shine a light on this dark world so that they might know what is to come. Amen? That's what we did. If not, then we've got to put ourselves on the shelf. We're going to use up all of our life for ourselves, and we take our life and we put it on the shelf. And it's not to be used for God's purposes. Let's pray.